Hollywood was a great haven for camp because it was a theatrical community protecting the eccentric. Camp is a holiday for consenting adults. Camp is a second childhood. Camp is Judy Garland. Philip Corr in 1984. It's a blast from the past. A classic. And at the same time, progressive. Go. It's like there's no tomorrow. Gosh. You're going to be okay, kid. Go. Go. It's like a breath of fresh air. Welcome to Camp Film Club, a safe haven for Heather Boa in... Ooh, hello. <laughs> Heather Boa, that's a drag name. <laughs> Heather Boa. A safe haven for Feather Boa enthusiasts everywhere. I'm your host, Luke Hereford, and I cannot contain my excitement for today's episode, where my co-host and I will discuss a film that needs no introduction, The Wizard of Oz. Speaking of needing no introduction, but we've given her one anyway, today's co-host is Head of Musical Theatre at Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. And before her varied and successful career as an actor in musical theatre, she trained at Welsh College of Music and Drama and the Royal Academy of Music. She is also a patron of Together We Stand UK, and in 2020, she was awarded the ARAM Associateship of the Royal Academy of Music. Please welcome the only person I know, aside from myself, who has a Judy Garland shrine. It's Vivian Kerr. <laughs> Thank you very much, Luke. I'm so delighted to be here. I can't tell you how excited I am. In fact, I had my dining room painted green. True story. This is a very <laughs> afternoon for the occasion. I'm so thrilled to have you. Um, it's also Pride Month. We're recording this in Pride Month. So happy Pride Month, Viv. Thank you very much. Happy Pride Month. There's, can't move for rainbows. Um, it's really nice. It's really nice. There's lots of things going on at the college for Pride Month. And I just, I did feel extra specially proud going into Sainsbury's yesterday to buy me alcohol-free beer. So yes, it's a very happy time all round. Where do you start? It's the Wizard of Oz. It's the ultimate enabler. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really, it allows us to dream Mm -hmm. and aspire and want to be sparkly and, you know, dream about the impossible. It was such a big thing for me um, growing up. Um, I was, it was the very first production I was ever in. And I think I must have been, and it was with um, an amateur theatre group called Anne Wen Little Theatre. And I think Anne Wen are still going, which was run by this wonderful woman called Marion Cook. And I was about five or six. And I just didn't understand why they didn't want me to play Dorothy. (laughs) But there are loads of photographs, um, loads of family photographs in the albums of me dressed as various munchkins and soldiers and ladybirds. And where are the ladybirds? We can talk about that later. And um, uh, yeah, it was just an incredible experience. And I watched the film religiously, um, relentlessly as a child. Yeah, I, I watched it religiously and relentlessly. And I always remember when Orbit Theatre did a production of it, Orbit Theatre, who are also still going. Um, and I, like, begged my mother for tickets for Christmas. Like, that was the Christmas present I wanted. I didn't want a PlayStation 2. I didn't want, like, you know... Uh, action Man. Tamagotchi. Action Man. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, happy Pride Month to you, too. Um I wanted tickets to see an amateur production of The Wizard of Oz at the new theatre. That's all I wanted. That's Did all you I get wanted. Them? 
Yes, of course. Wonderful. <laughs> and then, turn of fate, about 10 years later, I was in Orbit's next production of The Wizard of Oz. That is the serendipity we all dream of, isn't it? I mean, talk about full circle. Full circle moment. <laughs> The Wizard of Oz was released in 1939 by MGM Studios. Based on L. Frank Baum's novel, it stars Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, Burt Lahr, Margaret Hamilton and Frank Morgan. Regarded as a shining Technicolor beacon of hope for post-Depression era America, The Wizard of Oz remains an iconic film in the Hollywood canon and, according to the Library of Congress, has been seen by more people than any other film. But costing MGM around $2 million to make and with a production schedule lasting well over a year, it took until its re-release 10 years later to become a commercial success. Nonetheless, it received major critical success, both in its initial release and in contemporary reviews, being praised for its lavish production design, star-studded cast, and Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg's score. I think it's really important that we talk about the fact that its contemporary reviews are still at such a height, and, you know, every every year it gets closer and closer to that 100-year anniversary, (laughs) which is about... 17 years away is it maybe, oh we'll still be here less. we'll have to oh, do yes. an anniversary podcast <laughs> an anniversary podcast if people are still listening to podcasts by then who knows um, but every, and every you know every contemporary review you read of it is still celebratory of all of all of those aspects the production design the performances the music everything Oh, and the trivia, you know, the trivia pages, the iconography, you know, you need, you just go into even, you know, any commercial greetings card shop, you know, there's still the the posters and the pictures and those images just are so enduring. It's absolutely sort of woven into sort of um, 20th century and then it's camp because it's nostalgic. Yeah. Is one of the reasons because we think about, you know, being, you know, for little boys and little girls going, ah. <gasps> Just seeing the wonder of all of those colours, seeing the wonder of all of those colours, seeing flying monkeys, you know, just improbable and improbably beautiful things and daring to dream the impossible. I mean, it's just so permissive, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole, the whole premise of the film. I love, I love that you, the, one of the first things you said about it was that it, uh, that it is the ultimate enabler. <laughs> <laughs> and that idea of it being permissive, absolutely. And um, of course, like, we will talk about the the actual things within the film that are camp, but also so much of campness, which we've talked about a lot in the other episodes of the podcast so far, is is legacy and sort of this idea that you said of nostalgia is a big part of that, isn't it? And and films gain a camp legacy over time, and this is the prime example of that because, you know, aside from the fact that it is just beautiful to look at and, you know, it's associated with the family... Uh, it has been spoofed and parodied and uh, beyond all of those actual images it's it's gained its own legacy of of those things people really love and feel an affinity you know just with you know dorothy's journey into that wonderful technicolor world into her you know disappointment when she can't get what she dreams of you know there's shattered dreams there's wanting there's aspiration there's so much in there um which which is actually in something that's so technically um 
beautiful and so colourful and so beautifully. Uh, the cinematography is just so amazing, isn't it? But actually has some really relatable themes of yes. disappointment and, and wish. If stepping from your sepia-toned world into a world of glorious technicolour isn't a metaphor for coming out of the closet, nothing is. And that is a joke, but it's also actually true because of all of the other things on Dorothy's plate that make her relatable for a queer audience. Well, it's absolutely true. You know, dreaming of a different life and she gets the opportunity to visit this life with all of these misfits and other people who are trying to fit in and they all find, you know, there's a commonality between them. There's a shared understanding of their sort of disparate backgrounds and they're all searching for something better. Um, you know, had the courage to explore a different colourful lifestyle. I mean, the metaphor couldn't be clearer um i'm not sure how deliberate it was or whether it's our read of it but uh, yeah it's it's incredibly permissive as i said earlier on it's it's just a wonderful it's saying come along on the journey you never know what you might find you could be lazy and be like oh well, of course it's campus the wizard of Oz because it's judy garland and it's and it's dorothy but but also like it has all of these other little golden nuggets of campness which i which i uh, i find really interesting like the fact that the three friends are all vaudeville actors and they ha- and they sort of show all of that pastiche well we look at it now as pastiche but actually back then it was obviously current Classic. modern yeah this this vaudevillian approach to performance and it's all and and then you also have all of those things that I love in like an old studio Hollywood movie, like the um, that sort of typical almost mid the, the mid Atlantic voice that all the extras seem to have. Like all the extras in all the films from the thirties and forties have the same voice. Of course, all the behind the scenes drama that's really camp as well. That's a nice camp legacy thing that I like to hold on to. There was a lot going on, wasn't there? Because there were all those directors. Mm-hmm. There were all the kind of. You know, all the drama about people getting paid different amounts of money. You know, Mm -hmm. Judy Garland wasn't actually paid that much money um, compared to, you know, Ray Bolger and, you know, those other characters. I think, you know, there's quite a lot in there and all the all the things that went on with, you know, the costume debacles. Um, There's so much is so rich to dive into. And I think a lot of that Judy Garland pay nonsense i mean aside from the fact that she was a woman in hollywood in the 1930s um i think it's to do with the fact that she was on contract which was such a big thing for those um for those big studios back in the day it was it was all about okay we'll get an actor on contract for sort of seven years and they'll be paid their annual salary and then we'll get them to churn out as many films as we can make them before we break them you know, this was really the start. It was the start of Judy Garland's career as a star, as we all know her. But it was also the yeah. start of of all of those tragic things that happened much later in her life. I mean, there's. I mean, you know, we hear about. You know, wasn't this the film on on which that she was? You know, began to be given. You know, drugs to keep her awake and alert, and then things to help her sleep at night. And you know, her her uh, figure was bound so that she had a, a more girlish figure so a sort of flatter chest there was a lot of things going on for her which were probably really formative I mean it's not a million miles away from you know Drew Barrymore and E.T. really you know the mm-hmm. kind of things that she was exposed to at a really early age I know that she'd had you know her her other sort of vaudeville and you know singing experience but I think it was huge I mean it was absolutely huge to be thrust right in the middle of this I mean they can't have known they can't have known what it was going to turn into but surely they must have known that it was super ambitious 
and there's a duty of and there's a duty of care, I guess, that that should have come with with her. Which, well, I, with all of the cast, really, when we talk about some of the things that happen to the other cast members on set. <laughs> um, I'm looking at you, Margaret Hamilton, wherever you may be. Uh, but yeah, and, and they didn't know that it was going to be this massive film, but I think that kind of goes back to maybe the, the, the way that she was being treated in that she was filming this back-to-back with at least two other movies as part of her MGM contract, which is crazy because she's in every shot. It's she astonishing. She's never off screen, and it's it's astonishing to put a teenage girl through that. I mean, did she have any say? I, I'm not sure. And it, it's it's just an incredible, an incredible workload and an astonishing amount of pressure. I mean, what went on behind the scenes is is dramatic as, as in its own right, you know, as mm-hmm. a story. She gives such a beautiful performance. <laughs> and I think it's, it's... I never really watch it and think I'm watching Judy Garland. And I think that's a lot to do with my own experience of having... I kept coming to that film before I came to her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, me too. I mean, she she just... That was Dorothy. Yeah. And it was the, you know, the plaits and the pinafore and the pout and the, just the look of... She just looks bewildered all the time. Like, all of these things are happening around her and somebody who doesn't really have control. And then she takes control, doesn't she, a bit further along, you know, through the movie. And you just see, you know, her sort of burgeoning um, growth as well, which is... I mean, she's just incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. who didn't want to be Dorothy? I ask you that, listeners. The Witch is a super camp. I have a whole thing ready to talk about Margaret Hamilton later <laughs> because I, I am obsessed wait. with her performance in The Wizard of Oz. I'm obsessed with Margaret Hamilton's performance in The Wizard of Oz. She's the archetype, isn't she, of that scary oh. woman? Oh, it's so Shakespearean. Like, she's Shakespearean, is it? Like, her text is written in such a way. It's like, it's like she's doing Shakespeare. Or it's, it's like she's... I don't know that there's something really classical and really classy about what she does. High status poetic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it's Glinda. I think Glinda's really camp, you see. If we're talking yeah. about this film being camp. So is Glinda the perfect mother? You know, she's a glamorous, unruffled. You know, she's not young, is she? The actress who's playing Glinda. She's 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 a she's a cougar. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say MILF I don't know if I can um, Okay but you know Glinda she's motherly She's glamorous She's unruffled And I wonder if she represents You know Some kind of ideal mother figure You know Especially if you contrast her with Aunt Em Who's a really cross And just all about the work yeah. And all about the farm And then Glinda Not a care in the world Huge pink dress You know It's yeah. just wonderful Isn't it Just I've got, you know, perfect curls, amazing makeup and a wand. And just, you know, it's it's idealised glamour. The standoff between the two of those in that first scene um, is excellent. And it, it's almost pantomime villain, you know, with one of them on stage right, one of them on stage left, green light, pink light. It's such excellent camp banter, that conversation. Be gone before someone drops a house. All that. Glinda doesn't, it doesn't touch her. It just, you know, it just bounces off her. Like she's just a force field of good and glamour and pink and sparkles and wands and, and auburn. It's just the most dignified, you know, saintly um, 
you know, which we've ever seen. It's just, yeah. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but she's really, it's almost Virgin Mary. I went there. Well, you've already called her a cougar, so I mean, <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why not? Florals for spring. Groundbreaking. Costumes were designed by Adrian Dolph Greenberg. I didn't find out much about him. Well, I mean, he, he was them. probably too busy to talk to people about what he was getting up to. I mean, the, the I mean, what a design! Yeah, I mean, just just incredible. I mean, where do you start? I mean, you start with Dorothy, of course, with the iconic gingham pinafore and plaits. She doesn't change. That's what's quite interesting. Dorothy doesn't change. She stays the same Dorothy, and I think that's a very interesting idea. You're right. She doesn't even when she goes into the the wash and the wash up and brush up company in the yeah. Emerald City. They're like, mm, we'll, we'll give you a poem, but we'll stay in that dress. Yeah. Now, now that is camp. Wash up. I've written down what it's called because that is that is wash and brush camp. up. Wash and brush up. Wash and brush up co with the sort of art deco fontage above above the door that is camp it's an amazing sequence and i, I my favorite bit about that is um not just you know that <laughs> they each get sort of serviced by a whole bevy of <laughs> you know green clad beauticians but the lion's ringlets and his little yeah. bow at the end it's just amazing <laughs> all of the costumes in the emerald city sequence are i think what makes it so so uh, stand out as a whole sequence is that it's obviously a take on 1930s contemporary fashion isn't it yeah. suddenly it's the only time in the film where it becomes contemporary especially those beauticians with their their sort of um angular sleeves and shoulders and oh it's great it's really stylish i think the women are very notably stylish actually mm -hmm. um in that whole emerald city i mean there's two women who look up at the surrender dorothy <laughs> or die well it was surrender dorothy or die originally wasn't it um mm. but yeah really stylish and everybody looks their absolute best which of course they do because once you reach nirvana when you do find the the place that you've been looking for of course you're going to feel miss at uh, your best what, shall we talk about these two women who I'm obsessed with and want to see a spin-off in the style of Wicked about? <laughs> They're mid-Atlantic. They're like mid-Atlantic sort of Hollywood extras. Who's Dorothy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're both in sort of wimples, but jewel-encrusted wimples. And they are matching. They're identical. Oh, God, yes, of course they are. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. And they both look quite calm, actually. Considering, considering there is, there is a, a witch flying oh. above their town, their home. But who knows what happens in the Emerald City? I mean, it, it, anything can happen. I think they're, I think they're calm and just going, oh, what's that? It's just, just <laughs> typical of, you know, because everything is so heightened. It's just a normal day. Yeah, it's just a normal day in the Emerald City. I mean, now that is, now that is the name of an autobiography if I ever did hear one. It's just, just a normal day, day in the Emerald City. City. That is, that's one of us is having that. Well, you can have um, it for your memoir. <laughs> thank you. That's what I was hoping you'd say. So I really, when I was a child, I really struggled watching the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. Right. Because I really like struggled with their makeup and the Lion, I guess, to some degree, figuring out what was face and what was if it was a mask, if it was makeup, it, in like a. <laughs> In a, in a good way, a, the illusion was is is incredible. Is is what I'm trying to say. The illusion's excellent. 
Well, it, I couldn't quite work out if it, you know, particularly with the scarecrow, is that the, you know, the actor's own saggy cheeks? That's Ray Bolger, isn't it? Is it his own saggy mm. cheeks? And I, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the, you know, when you see them at the end, when she goes back and, uh, you know, she's in bed and they're, they're all there looking through the window, just going, oh, and that moment of realisation and that compare and contrast, you know, uh, between those two faces, it is quite incredible. I couldn't work out with the, um, it, he looks, the scarecrow sort of looks as if he's had a, a sort of dishcloth glued to him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? One of those sort of like, you know, quite an open mesh. And yeah. <laughs> Like a really cheap one from Wilco. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's really incredible. And the Tin Man, I spent loads of time like thinking, could he move? Like inside, yeah. like, where was his body in relation to like that? What's it made of? What's it made of? What is it made of? Was it tin? It was probably, I mean, it was, you know, obviously distressed by the costume department. It was probably, I don't know, what was it? But what was it? He couldn't bend from the waist. He couldn't, yeah. you know, it was really um, incredible. And that lion costume as well, it weighed, um, I mean, stones and stones, wasn't it? 90 pounds or something. Yeah, 90 pounds I've read. And I've read that it was made with real lion pelts, which um, not something you do now, is it? <laughs> I've just looked and 90 pounds is six stone. So <laughs> that's a six stone costume. I mean, even Carlotta in Phantom of the Opera, I think her heaviest dress was three stone. That was the skirt. You know, it's huge. Six stone heavier. That's a whole person heavier. Miss Gulch's hat. She has this sort of um, woven black hat, presumably black, because it's in the sort of sepia uh, uh, section of the film. And it looks so stiff and so... Why any woman would wear that hat? You know, she wears it with a sort of school mommy dress. And, uh, yeah, that's a very scary hat and with the sort of flowers sticking out. It's it's a nasty hat, that. But the plaits, going back to, to um, Dorothy, did you know that the original design for Dorothy wasn't going to be those brown plaits with the bows in the end? It was going to be a big sort of Marilyn Monroe, although it predated Marilyn Monroe, but the big kind of Hollywood big bouncy blonde wig and that come doesn't that come from the original originally they wanted Shirley Temple yeah. to play Dorothy yeah. so I think the first director attached was trying to emulate that kind of Shirley Temple-ness onto Judy Garland but then I think the second director then said no no we're gonna keep it as as her which is well I think more iconic because she because she's much more clearly her own version of herself. Yeah, and not sort of hyper. She's not. She's not sexualized. She's not no. made to look older. In fact, you know, quite the opposite. She was made to look younger than she was. Um, and it's perfect. I mean, can you imagine that version with the kind of saccharine Shirley mm. Temple with the with the kind of the dimples and the and the ringlets? It would just not. I mean, I was going to say it's not; it wouldn't have been as believable. What am I even talking about? This is the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> but you were you were totally okay with the, with the talking lion, right? I was totally okay with the talking. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to raise a little flag for for the design of the of the Emerald City Guard. Um, my description in the notes that we have is: it looks like the happy nineteen thirties love child of a beef eater and a muppet. <laughs> That's just perfect. If Muppets, um, if Muppets did staff the Tower of London, that's what they would look like. Exactly, exactly. Um, 
That's amazing. <laughs> Frank Morgan. That's Frank Morgan who plays the wizard. He plays five of five roles in the whole film, and it's amazing. It's such a again another one of those sort of old school vaudeville performers showing his range. Yeah, his range. So he was Professor Marvel in Kansas, and then he's the door guy, the carriage guy, the second guard, the one who cries, which I think he's he's the furry one. Yes. And then the wizard. But he's such a sad figure. I, I just, I used to feel so terribly sad for Professor Marvel. We all know he's a big old phony, and he's, you know, mm. he's, he's a bit scatty, isn't he, and a bit of a mess. And Dorothy completely buys it. I think that you know, he was a, a wonderful, wonderful actor. He was, really, really was. There's no finer one-liner. This is one from The Cowardly Lion. I got a permanent just for the occasion, which is after he has his hair done, after he gets his hair did. <laughs> this is basically saying, I got a perm just to go meet the wizard, and now you're telling me I can't. Come on, is there no justice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genuinely, genuinely disappointed. I look at all the effort I've made. Yeah. It could be time for my Wicked Witch of the West appreciation. Well, I was actually. wondering who was going to do the Wicked Witch of the West. Well, I've already, I've already kind of mentioned that she has this incredible Shakespearean text. And it's written, it's written with such a different, different vernacular style to the rest of the lines. So it's obviously super intentional. And so is Glinda's as well, I think. So is Glinda's text. It's sort of this heightened otherworldly other language that they speak because they're witches. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of spears. Thought you were pretty foxy, didn't you? Well, the last to go will see the first three go before her. And her mangy little dog, too. It's beautifully written. Thought you were pretty foxy, didn't you? <laughs> What a stone-cold bitch. I know, I know. She's just so unhappy. She's so bitter. I mean, you know, she's in. The, there's not a soft furnishing in that castle. She's just... She's the most uncomfortable person. She's wearing an uncomfortable dress. She's an uncomfortable... It just And everything is just delivered through, you know... Gritted teeth with a with a sort of wrinkled up nose and and, and and clenched fist. And I think it's just incredible. And yes, it's this very poetic, heightened um it's almost couplets, isn't it? Somebody always helps that girl. Shoes or no shoes. I've so great enough to conquer her, and woe to those who try to stop me. It's another one. Who's she talking to? <laughs> It's just wonderful, you know, it's like these great, almost like soliloquies to herself. Yeah, that's one of her little castle moments. Yeah. Aside from her flying monkeys, and I, but I don't, I don't think the flying monkeys really sort of make an appearance until maybe castle soliloquy number three. So. Yeah, but they're not deep thinkers, the monkeys, are they? They're no. just sort of obedient. <laughs> I don't think they go, oh yes, quite no, they don't sort of, you know, have great sort of depth of insight and analysis, but... Um, but she's, you know, just justifying and emboldening herself all the way through, isn't she? And then, of course, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. I mean, we've all said that. We all say it, Every, you know, everyone. all the time. And because she doesn't say, you and your little dog, too, does no. she? She just says, and your little dog, too. And poor Toto. Now, I must say, this is a little diversion from quotes. I don't think Toto's a very good actor. 
I think he's a rubbish actor. On the yellow brick road, he looks like he always wants to go. He only just goes in the right direction. Pull it, pulling focus, <laughs> pulling focus from in in Summer Over the Rainbow when he's on that little seat. Yeah, yeah. He's not ever looking in the right direction. He's no. not a devoted sidekick. He looks as no. if he's a, you know, he looks as if he was sort of like second choice. Um, and that, you know, he could have brushed his hair. I think he was he, he was scruffy than needed to be. But of course, he needed to belong to the farm world. No, I don't think Toto's very good. No, he's not a good actor. And no. he got paid more than Judy Garland, apparently. Outrageous. 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 The line I love is when um, Dorothy says to the scarecrow at the end, and this is the one that makes me cry, I guess I'll miss you most of all. And there's a really tender moment. And there, there's a bit of a story with that one because there was a cut scene in which there was, um, well, the cut scene hinted at a potential romance between oh. the Scarecrow and Dorothy, which is, you know, that's cross-species. That's very queer, happy pride. Um, yeah, but they cut it, I think, because it was a bit, uh, they, they weren't sure it was up to uh, sort of contemporary tastes at the time but yeah i guess i'll miss you most of all have another uh, watch of that and you can see there's a little bit of longing and it's interesting he doesn't say anything in response but maybe he doesn't need to say anything because they 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 it's already been said yeah it's a beautiful moment it's a really beautiful moment last one and this is always misquoted but toto i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore and I think that's a great one-liner, isn't it? People always say, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Mm-hmm. And people people leave Toto out of it. But as we said, you know, fair enough. He doesn't deserve to be in it, can't act. But Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. That's what we think it is. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Because she, where she's all of a sudden, she's surrounded by, you know, houses with eggs on the roofs. Yeah. <laughs> like... Really, you know, you, you, yes, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. We need to talk about the Munchkins' eggs. <laughs> do, do the Munchkins lay eggs? We see the child Munchkins, don't we? They're sleeping in the eggshells, and they're like, "Ha, wake up, your sleepy head!" Ha ha ha! Oh yeah, yeah, the witch is dead. The the, the unhatched eggs on the other roofs of their thatched roof nest houses. So that I mean, you know, they're going to have a big population problem. But also, what I quite like. <laughs> Are the subcultures of munchkins, you know, the, yeah. the lollipop guilds, you know, who are just like really butch, yeah. um, which I love, you know, with the pipe and the, you know, the kind of flexed ankle. And then the Lullaby League, I mean, who, you know, sing so stratospherically high. They have all these different types of munchkins as well. It's yeah. nuts. It's a community. So, no, you're and... not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Hun. Um, and they all, hatch, they all hatch from eggs. Dame Trivia, Newton-John. Four directors worked on The Wizard of Oz, and the first was Richard Thorpe, who was fired after two weeks, and then George Cukor filled in for three days. Victor Fleming directed for uh, the longest period of time, and then King Vador agreed to complete the final ten days of The Wizard of Oz's filming schedule. Um, And there was a period in which Victor Fleming directed Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz back to back because he was the guy who went to rescue Gone with the Wind Um, and that was for about eight months he was doing that. Apparently all of them have their own different input on the film even though it's accredited as a a 
Victor Fleming movie. So George Cukor, the second director, is the one who took Dorothy out of the blonde wig. Yeah. Victor Fleming is responsible for the majority of the film. And then King Vador did all of the Kansas scenes. I mean, those directors, I mean, that was a time of big ego directors, wasn't it? You know, there's, there's all these uh, accounts of um, Judy Garland actually being treated quite badly by Victor Fleming. I mean, he sounds like a very frustrated man if he was also trying to rescue Gone with the Wind at the same time. You're right, though, because there is a story about Victor Fleming slapping her and telling, taking her off set and slapping her for behaving like a child because she kept laughing at Bert Lahr. Yes, and you can see, actually, in one of the scenes between um, Dorothy and the lion, you can see that she's stifling a laugh. That was before she got slapped, wasn't it? Yeah. Buddy Epson was originally cast as the Tin Man, but in the early days of filming, his makeup, which was made with aluminium powder, coated his lungs and left him with in critical condition and meant that he couldn't breathe properly for the rest of his life. Yeah, he complained about it for the rest of his born days, didn't he? Mm-hmm. So they replaced him with Jack Haley, who, and then they changed the makeup, thankfully. <laughs> um, and Jack Haley, do you know about the link between Jack Haley and Judy Garland? No. So Jack Haley's son, Jack yeah. Haley Jr., later married Liza Minnelli. <gasps> so was wow. Liza Minnelli's third husband, I think, or second well, husband. Well, it's just a big family. <laughs> <laughs> It's Hollywood. We're all related. <laughs> I mean, um, nepotism. I mean, it's just brilliant. I mean, why not? They're all moving in the same circles. Yeah. That's great bit of trivia. I love that. So as well as that sort of aluminium powder tin man debacle, did you know that the directors and the studio, before they settled on Victor Fleming, they wanted the witch to be all glam, like the Wicked Queen in Snow White, when it was another actress. And when it decided, when they decided that she was going to be all witchy up, you know, sort of like, you know, the, the whole the whole full alphabet, she pulled out. She pulled out of the film because she wanted to be, but you can't have two Glindas. That's the problem. That's true, yeah. And and yes. then and then the other and then the, the other makeup story is that Margaret Hamilton's makeup, she wasn't allowed to ingest any of it because it had copper in it. Was she trying to ingest it? No, I just I just think that there was something to do. I think she almost did sometimes, and then she got sick or something. Um, so she just had to, like, constantly drink through a straw on set. She wasn't allowed to eat or drink on set unless it was through a straw, at the risk of ingesting it. And she also got third-degree burns from that first trapdoor sequence that they do in Munchkinland, which is why then every other time she disappears in a cloud of smoke, you sort of see the smoke, and then it's a shot to Dorothy as the cackle fades away, and then a shot back, and she's gone. With the shoes, so those iconic, those ruby slippers, did you know that there were lots of different designs for those? And that First of all, one of the original designs was that they were going to be those sort of big curly-toed Arabian slippers, such as you find in Aladdin. I mean, that would have been a different film. They weren't quite sure how many of those pairs of ruby slippers were ever made. They There was sort of a mystery with it, um, but nobody's quite sure how many pairs were made or which ones were actually Judy Garland's original slippers. So we don't so we don't know the provenance of these sort of pairs that sort of found themselves, you know, in the ether. And there was a woman who won a pair of these original ruby slippers in a competition in the 50s or something. She used to go on the telly, you know, saying, I've got the ruby slippers. And um and I think it might be her pair that are now in the Smithsonian. 
uh, museum. There's a pair which are nicknamed the Witcher Shoes because they are apparently the most valuable pair because they were used most in filming, allegedly. Oh, and they really? have they have an inscription on the inside that says number seven Judy Garland on on them, <gasps> which insinuates that because everyone believes that there was only about five or six pairs made, but that insinuates that there's seven or more. There were indeed, indeed. I mean, is it wrong to be this excited about the provenance of the ruby slippers? I mean, I just find that so fascinating. No, it's the most fascinating thing. They're the most iconic movie prop in history. They must be. They must be obsessed. And and, and there, there was also a mystery, wasn't there, about whether somebody who worked at Western Costume, whether they rescued old costumes. Because, you know, back then, MGM, the studio wouldn't have thought of those things as necessarily becoming iconic Absolutely. You know, they couldn't have sort of foreseen so they sort of got written so you know some costume worker rescued the shoes and um you know because they didn't think it was important so these things could have absolutely made their way out couldn't they so there were 124 munchkin actors who were all housed in the same hotel culver city hotel and apparently during the time they were filming the police had to be called almost every night for the amount of drunken parties and orgies that were being held in their rooms. Orgies! That's amazing. Really? Yeah, really. I'm going to look back um, with that knowledge, and I reckon that guy in the the lollipop, uh, the lullaby league. I reckon he's uh, yeah, he's definitely out of a cell because he does look, you know, he's a little bit, you know, swollen around the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Gurning. There's a lot of gurning in Munchkin Land. There's a lot, a lot of gurning. Yeah, uh, you know, walking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hobbling. So the whole thing about the poppies, you know, when they they fall asleep in the poppy fields, and we know, you know, poppies, opium, heroin. We know about that. But apparently, the poppies were coated in um, asbestos spray or asbestos powder. Yes. So they were actually genuinely chemically really <laughs> dangerous. I think they had to limit the time uh, that they spent around those poppies. I do use an emoji. Oh, my most recently used emoji was a peach. So... Uh... <laughs> So out of ten, ten peaches, how many peaches for campness do you rate The Wizard of Oz, 1939? Oh, ten out of ten peaches for campness. I mean, it's the ultimate. <laughs> the ultimate ten peaches. Do you know what I always say about The Wizard of Oz is I wish I could go back and watch it for the first time. Yes, yes. I'm not sure I knew what I was looking at. Mm. I think I just took it. I just, you know, in that wonderful way that children do, I just accepted all of the random eggs on roofs and witches and flying monkeys and, you know, why the heck not? It just, I, I sort of wasn't ever really sure what the poppies were about. But now I'm a grown-up, I do know. Thank you for listening to Camp Film Club. For extracurricular camp activity, you can follow us on Twitter at Camp Film Club and keep the conversation going with the hashtag Camp Film Club. You can also search Camp Film Club on Spotify and follow our playlist inspired by the soundtracks of our featured camp films. And it, of course, includes optimistic voices from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs>
All discussion on the Camp Film Club are opinions of our guests only, and are not endorsed by the actors, directors, producers, or writers of our featured films. In fact, quite the opposite. The Camp Film theme is composed by Michael Robert Lowe.